Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to have Gerard Tannen, who is the founder and managing director of Island Bridge Brand Development, on as my guest. Gerard, would you mind giving us a quick introduction to who you are and what kind of experience you have in the branding world? Hello, Marcus. Delighted to be with you on the Inquisitor. I've spent maybe the last 30 years in a variety of roles in business, both in uh, Asia initially and more recently in Europe and working with clients all over the world. And whilst the different roles I had at the time um, differed, and in some instances I was uh, running small businesses, I was engaged by other businesses to run events for them, uh, whether they be uh, music events or theatre events or to help them to build a greater market share. What I found myself almost from the very beginning was kind of standing between people buying and people selling and developing an understanding of what the person buying needed from the person selling and in turn what the the person selling needed from their customers in order to ensure that there was a successful transaction or exchange of value between the two. Okay, well, let's start with a big question because a lot of people talk about branding and I think it's largely misunderstood. What is branding actually and why is it important? Yeah, I'm not so sure that it's as much understood as I think it's often underestimated what a brand is. And I'm kind of conscious because I don't come from a a formal kind of marketing background. So I, I have a certain kind of dispassionate observer view of it. I often ask people what they they understand the brand to be. And you'll hear all, I suppose, the expected answers. People will talk about branding a logo. They'll talk about it being a promise, a reputation, an image, a set of feelings, a standard of how things are done. And I think a brand is all of those things and more. I have a very kind of simple understanding of a brand and how it works. For me, a brand reflects a relationship between two people. Usually two people, one of whom is buying and one of whom is selling. But of course, buying and selling in the broadest sense, insofar as political party, for example, may wish a voter to buy into their message, to back their message. A medical authority may wish people to sign up to a vaccination program, for example. So I suppose the definition of buying and selling can be as broad as you like when you look at it in that sense. The brand isn't the relationship. It simply reflects the relationship and the Analogy I like to draw is between the, the marriage between two people. The marriage is just simply the name we give to a relationship, which we understand to be a relationship between two people. That's defined in various ways by as a marriage. Just as the, the ring on the finger isn't the marriage, it simply reflects the marriage. The logo and various other ways in which we know there's a, a relationship between the buyer and the seller is simply a symbol of the, of the relationship. So when you understand brand to be the relationship between two people, it gives you a, a really good basis on which to begin to explore what should my brand be? What should that relationship look like? What should it sound like? What should it feel like? And what are the things that I must do or say in order to build a relationship with my customer or with the person selling to me? Interesting. I've heard you describe the brand as a bridge between the buyer and the seller. Do you mind elaborating on that? Well, again, I think when we look at, at, at any relationship or any interaction between two people, you have typically a gap between what maybe one person on, on one side wants and, and what the person on the other side is prepared to offer or to give in exchange typically for some value. 
we've understood from a very early stage and aimed my business island bridge because I understood that the problem we were fixing for our customers was that there was a gap between them and the far shore of their organization or their market. And in order to reach across that gap, the most effective way was to build a bridge. And brands, for me, just as, as many other kind of elements of communication, whether they be messages, whether they be a handshake, whether they be a meeting of minds, a meeting of eyes across a room, all of those are, in effect, bridges between two people or bridges between two organizations or two countries or two markets for our clients. So the bridge became very kind of obvious and natural metaphor for us in our business. I know that earlier on in your career, you ran a very successful road safety project. Can you explain how you were able to, using that bridge analogy, you were able to bring into play a shift in behavior for your target demographic in order to create the outcome that your client wanted? Yes, well, when we looked at the campaigns which were being kind of run across the world in order to reduce uh, road deaths, which was the purpose of the project we were engaged on, when we looked at the various campaigns, it seemed to us that many of the authorities who were developing um, road safety campaigns were building bridges in the wrong places. In many instances, what they were attempting to do was to bridge a gap between the police or the educators or the medical authorities and those who were being killed on roads and those who were being maimed on roads and those who were suffering catastrophic injuries on roads. And when we looked at the road accidents, the road collisions, what we discovered very quickly was that the key relationship was the relationship between the person driving a car typically, or a truck, and uh, the person they were about to hit, sometimes driving another car, sometimes walking on a road, sometimes an innocent bystander in that sense. And in looking at it in that way, we realized that the gap that needed to be bridged was not the gap between the government or the local authority. The gap that needed to be bridged was between the person who was about to get behind the wheel of the vehicle and the person they were about to kill or to maim. And until we got to grips with what that relationship looked like, we'd be struggling to not only to build a brand, but also to build a brand that would change behavior and ultimately save lives. When we looked a little bit more closely at it, we realized that in Ireland, where the campaign was generated, most of the killing was being done by 22-year-old males, typically. And most of the dying was also being done by 22-year-old males. And not just any 22-year-old males, typically males living in rural areas where there wasn't local transport, where they They needed a car to get from A to B. And also males who were typically leaving pub or nightclub late at night, very often with other passengers in the car who could be a mix of boys and girls. And uh, they were driving at great speed, typically drunk, typically excited to drive as quickly as they could from one place to another. And meanwhile, while they were getting into their car very drunk outside one nightclub, their counterpart in another part of the county or not too far away, was getting into their car and uh, also driving at great speed. So it was an understanding that there was a kind of a terrible confrontation about to happen and trying to understand what were the steps that uh, each was taking in the lead up to getting behind the wheel of the car and what were the type of actions and behaviours we wanted to influence in order to stop them heading out on that uh, date with their nemesis and understanding that in effect it was a relationship between 
two parties, two people who are about to inflict that terrible harm on each other. So how did you create the messages for both those parties in that relationship? That to me sounds like a bit of an uphill struggle. How did you find the right message? We looked uh, into other scenarios where two people set out to do each other harm and uh, or environments in which people are kind of understood to be about to do each other terrible harm. And of course, the most obvious correlation is between people, soldiers or others who go out armed with a view to taking out their arms and uh, inflicting death or significant damage on somebody else. When we looked, I suppose, the most dramatic manifestation of that was the environments many, many years ago, uh, centuries ago, when knights would set out on the road or armies would set out. And if you were to kind of take a step back from those scenarios, you'd observe a, a kind of a fairly terrible marching towards their doom. And of course, armies and others understood that whole dynamic and you had a whole, I suppose, romantic ideal kind of built up around this idea of two people setting out to their deaths facing each other across a battlefield or facing each other on a road and heading, hurtling towards their doom. So that unlocked a, a very interesting idea for us, which was the, the notion that if you were out and about as a knight or as a soldier in ancient times and you met another soldier on the road and you wanted to indicate to them that you meant them no harm, that you intended to keep your sword by your side and not to draw it, you attached a, a white kerchief to your sword arm, by which your person meeting would know that you intended them no harm. So we invited motorists, and particularly young motorists, over the October bank holiday weekend in 1999 to wear a white flag on their car aerials, as they were then, to give you some sense of how long ago it was, and also to wear a little white sticker, just a pennant, a white pennant, which had no words on it, uh, just simply a white pennant on the tail of their shirt or their jacket, as they were leaving the pub. And the invitation was to fly the flag for road safety over that particular bank holiday weekend. We did a whole range of other things to kind of promote that message. But the effect of that message was that in the three months which followed October 99, namely November, December and January, which are the most fatal months to be on the road in Ireland and and I'm sure elsewhere because they're dark, wet months and people typically have to drive late at night, uh, we reduced road deaths by 40%, 40% on Irish roads. That simple message, which has been used and reused forever in the past 20 years, that simple message has reduced road deaths in Ireland from 450 a year to typically fewer than 150 a year, which is still too many. But for me, it was a real eye-opener insofar as we developed those, a simple understanding of that relationship between the person who was buying and the person who was selling, if you look at death in that context, and understanding that if you, if you could find a, a powerful basis on which they might form better relationship with each other and a message that would, would reflect that relationship, you can really make a, a difference in affecting change. Very interesting. One of the things that always gets up my nose is where people talk about looking for that USP and... I'm a firm believer that there's no such thing. I'm pretty sure from our conversations that you share a similar view. Do you mind talking to me a little bit about how you create 
a distinctive relationship between the buyer and the seller. And what you're looking for in order to create that bridge without going down the road of the silver bullet of the USP. Look, Marcus, I share your kind of sense that the notion of a USP is, always strikes me as very glib. It strikes me as the same sort of short-term-ism that you, you'll get when a, a young man or a young woman, or maybe an old man or an old woman, kind of heads out with this idea that they have a sort of a, a killer line that they're going to use in chatting up somebody, killer line that's going to clinch the deal kind of there and then. And I think it, it does an absolute disservice to the person who's buying something from you, that idea that there is a, you know, a silver bullet or a kind of a magic term or a potion that's going to win them once and for all. When you look at the interaction between two people buying and selling, and even if it's, if it's a momentary exchange, and even if it isn't necessarily a long-lasting relationship that you want to build, the reality is, is that the two people who are going to form that relationship whether it's a long relationship or a short relationship, they're each of them looking for something significant from the uh, exchange. Otherwise, they wouldn't need to buy or sell from one another. People form relationships, in my experience, much less the basis of something that's unique and more on the basis of something that's distinctive and also significant. So I I prefer to think of a DSP or a a distinct uh, selling point rather than a unique selling point. And, of course, its significance is important for the person buying and the person selling because you form the relationship based around what's distinctive between you. And I think if we, any of us thinks of the important relationships that we formed in our lives, whether that was with a school teacher when we were children and we were in the classroom and being absolutely kind of won over to math, maths or to English literature or whatever it might be, or the other relationships that we formed through our lives. Typically, it's not because the person is unique because we're all unique. So unique is a little bit uh, glib. It's more what was distinctive about that person. What was it that they were proposing by way of a, a relationship, which really compelled us to want to, to take whatever steps were required to involve ourselves in that relationship and commit ourselves to that relationship, even if it was a short-term relationship. I really want to stress that. Sometimes when I use the word relationship, I think people have in mind that I'm talking about something that's lifelong or, or deeply kind of meaningful for a long period of time. All that's important in, in any relationship is, is that it, it meets the needs of the two people at the particular time and for so long as, as both require it. So what are the kind of questions that the brand owner should be asking in order to be able to uncover what's distinctive and significant in the relationship? Well, you see, because ultimately when you're in any relationship, you're exchanging things that you value with one another. You're, you're exchanging things which are significant to you and which are important to you. So that otherwise you wouldn't uh, bother with a relationship. So the questions that we ask have to be around what, what's important to us, what we value. And the way in which we typically tell other people what's important to us and what we value is by virtue of the, the stories that we tell and also the stories that we choose to listen to, the stories that we listen to and retell to other people. So the questions that we ask are always around story. And I don't necessarily mean story in the grand sense. I also mean, you know, anecdotes, reflections, jokes, things that amused us, things that touched us. And some of those things are small stories 
and some of them are big stories. But of course, even the small stories typically point towards big stories for us because they're important, because they matter somehow. So it's about asking questions about what matters to people. And usually we do that by inviting people to tell us stories. Again, in my experience where we've developed stories, typically that's driven out of some form of shared experience or common ground or even difference. So I'm curious in terms of some of the experiences that you've had where you've been working with your clients and you're able to create a story that wasn't obvious but helped all sides to really get an understanding of that relationship and build those bridges. We worked a number of years ago now with a company which uh, sells the ingredients that go into ice cream. So essentially the ingredients that people who wish to make an ice cream cone or a, a milkshake in their shop, in a retail, a convenience store environment. Before we kind of looked at the, I suppose what people would understand, the branding and to be around ice cream, we wanted to get some understanding of what ice cream means to people and particularly what it means to children because most of us experience or taste ice cream for the very, very first time as children. So we spoke with a number of people, both adults and children, to get a better understanding of First of all, what are the memories that adults associate with ice cream? And also we spoke to children to get some sense of what ice cream means to them right now. And almost immediately, what we heard was stories that were less about the ice cream itself and more about the events or the circumstances or the environment in which people had an ice cream for the first time. And we heard of people remembering their first trip to a, a football final or their first trip to a beach or their first family gathering or event. So a lot of the memories that people had around ice cream were very, very early memories and typically associated with not just memorable occasions, but memorably kind of happy. And I don't mean they were necessarily happy to an outsider in, in a very obvious sense, but they were events that people associated with a kind of a happy time in their lives. And there was one person we spoke to who kind of remarked and said that if you want a child to remember something, buy them an ice cream. Because <laughs> long after the memory of the day itself has gone, long after the memory of you know who won the match or how long the sun shone or whatever it might be, the memory of the ice cream and the, that kind of golden moment that the child has had will linger. So for our client, it was about an understanding that the ice cream was kind of associated with that childlike, innocent memory and understanding what was the best way in which we could begin to relate that to somebody who might buy an ice cream from our client. Very interesting. You talk a lot about relationships. And when we were thinking about this particular conversation, we were talking about how relationships are built in business in the same way that they are in personal situations, that they're built over time. And there's a journey that people go through. So 
What I'm curious about are the kind of mistakes people make when they're trying to put their brand story together and why they seem to fall foul of those traps. I think that people forming, if you like, brand relationships or relationships that happen in, in a more commercial or kind of business context or professional context is that there's a certain dishonesty don't necessarily mean that it's always an intentional dishonesty. But I think just as in any relationship, if you're not clear with the person with whom you're going to form the relationship, what each of you is getting out of the relationship, if you're not clear about that, I think people often mismatch. And they mismatch for all the same reasons that people do in personal relationships in that they want something that the other person isn't willing to give or... They each think they want the same thing from the relationship. The mistakes are, are, I guess, I'm a little maybe idealistic in many respects, but I do believe that most people set out to form relationships with good intentions. Not everybody. Clearly, there are people who who set out to deliberately pull the wool over the other person's eyes. But most people uh, set out in business to do a good job, to provide a good service, to deliver a good product. And most people buy from other people in the belief that the, the person on the other side, the shop counter, has their best interests at heart. So there's a, I think there's a certain idealism at the heart of commerce, which will probably surprise people because we tend to, to think of it in cynical terms of people wanting to take advantage of one another. So for me, one of the great mistakes is that you're not clear as a seller, first of all, about what it is that you need from the transaction, what it is you need from the relationship before you start talking about what the other person wants from the relationship. For business owners, it's really important to be clear about what's in it for you. And I don't mean necessarily in a kind of a cold or a a tremendously kind of commercial way. I just mean that you need to be clear kind of what you're getting out of it. What's the payback for you for providing that service, etc. And on the flip side then, when you're not clear uh, with, with your customer about what's in it for you, they're typically invited to be equally unclear or disingenuous about what's in it for them. So you end up with a kind of an arm wrestle around uh, two people trying to get something that, and and neither of them is entirely clear about what's in it for the other person. So it makes us suspicious, it makes us uh, cynical, and it makes us somewhat dishonest, even if if we don't set out to be dishonest. So one of the, the most important things I think any business owner can do first is be absolutely clear what they want to get out of their business. What is it they want to get out of the transaction? What's the value in it for them? And I think it's only when we're clear about what the value is for us that we can be begin to be clear about what the value then that we can offer to others. So I see far too many businesses offering, appearing to offer great value. And it's quite clear that they haven't invested themselves in that value first of all, for their customer, but critically for themselves. So perfect example is is that you go into businesses where customer service, they talk about customer service. (laughs) And it's quite clear they haven't asked themselves, what's the value to them, the business owner, in delivering great customer service? Because unless there's value to the business in customer service, they cannot afford to offer it. So you go into businesses that promise customer service, and it's quite clear they haven't invested in it. So usually the person who's tasked with delivering great customer service on behalf of the business is the least well-paid, the least well-trained, the least authoritative, 
the least tuned in to what the customer actually wants and is able to give the customer what the customer wants in terms of customer service. This raises the mega question around customer experience rather than customer service. Because I think what brands need to deliver is not only clarity, but a promise behind that clarity. In my experience, ambiguity is the mother of all foobars. If in an organization where the leadership is ambiguous and unclear, that creates politics at the bottom. And when the rubber hits the road and they're facing the customer, that then sends out yet another message that lacks clarity. And so in terms of the value that the vendor or the seller wishes to attain, obviously they want to make a transaction happen. But the smart money is thinking longer term. They're thinking about how can we keep this client? Because it's all well and good getting them to come in through the front door. But if you're letting them out in their droves through the back door, then you're not likely to survive and you're not going to be cutting a profit. So I'm curious in terms of how you take this a bit further in terms of the overall customer experience or the partner experience in channels where the brand represents some form of longer-term commitment to the relationship. For me, it's interesting to see those businesses that have grown very fast in the digital environment in particular, because we've had an opportunity in the last 10 or 15 years to see brands grow and businesses grow much more quickly than before. So businesses which historically would have taken decades to grow for us to be able to see the evolving relationship between them and their customers and the evolving relationship between them and their markets, the likes of Facebook, the likes of Google, the likes of Twitter, the likes of Apple, we've seen them grow very quickly. It's all been happening in a matter of hours and minutes, uh, in some cases, rather than years. And what we see with many of those businesses and many of those brands is is that there is a kind of the short-termism of the business and their view of relationship becomes very obvious. So Facebook is an example. I don't wish to pick on Facebook, although they're big enough that maybe I should. But I don't mean to pick on Facebook, but in many respects, they're quite typical of, of many of the brands that have grown up in that space is that they were not honest with us about what value there was to them as a business. They were not value honest with us as users of Facebook about where the value lay for them in their relationship with us. And I believe if they'd been honest with us, many of us would still have, have undertaken to exchange and that value. We would have been happy for them to have got certain information about us in exchange for the use of what was a very useful platform. But I think the short-termism that's been at work in many of those environments reflects I suppose, an inability to see how the relationship plays out. So when we work with customers, we ask ourselves about the whole relationship, not just the immediate transaction, but the test of any good relationship. And this is true in life as well as in in business is if you were asked five years later, 10 years later, would you do it again? Would you buy it again? Would you go there again? And if you answer yes, well, that's the the greatest test of relationship that, that any of us have. There's another brand, which I just touched on a moment ago, Apple, which, of course, grew up very quickly, but not quite as quickly as some of those others I've mentioned. You could argue that the Apple brand has been growing over the last 30, 35 years. But as a user of Apple over the years, what has struck me about Apple is that they've been very aware, by and large, I'm not suggesting they haven't taken some missteps, but they've been very aware of the, the experience of the user from start to finish, so much so that... Uh, Steve Jobs was building into 
Apple from the very beginning, the value in the use of the product itself, and not value in knowing my data or knowing so much about me or seeing the opportunity to sell one thing to me as an opportunity to sell another. When I bought an Apple product, Apple was by and large happy, by and large, and there's been some changes in the last few years, but by and large, they were happy that I buy that product and that they didn't use that product as a, an immediate excuse to sell me another product. Interesting. So again, I think one key aspect of this is that I think branding is much like washing. If you don't keep doing it, you're going to begin to stink. And I think one of the key messages that I'm pulling from this conversation is that you need to stay fully aware. You have to be present. You have to compete with yourself. And it's no good sitting on your laurels. If you're Coca-Cola, perhaps you can kind of get away with that. But for most of us, I mean, particularly in a, a smaller business, as you evolve and your customers evolve, you need to change. Your message needs to adapt. And the promise that you're making needs to evolve as well. What kind of advice would you give to a smaller business rather than one of these megalithic firms, but a smaller business like yours or mine in terms of how to create a really good understanding of who your customer is and target that messaging so that you achieve what I think you term the customer bullseye? Yes, that's right. I suppose I'm going to begin answering that question by saying, I think it often depends in the sense that I think sometimes we get tired of our message long before our customer does. So I think it, it very much depends on the context. In other words, the context of what is being bought and sold and how the customer is using the product or using the service that we offer. And I suppose ultimately, I'm always happier talking about service than I am products because even products themselves are really a means of delivering a service. So a can opener enables us to deliver the service of opening the can, <laughs> even though it's a product. So I'm probably more comfortable talking about service. So I think when we talk, when we think and talk in terms of service is, is that sometimes the message doesn't need to change. I think it needs to, we need to understand that when people move on and when people evolve, sometimes, of course, we want to hear kind of the same core message. We want to hear it expressed differently. We want to be entertained or we want to be amused or diverted. But there's a lot of products and services that are offered really what the customer is looking for is consistency in messaging. So I think it's very, very important for small business owners in particular to, to check in often with their customers and check in formally and informally. And by which I mean formally is by asking directly, how's this going? Informally is just checking in because we can see and the people who deliver what it is that we offer to our customers, they can see, they can hear, they can sense if they're paying attention. They can sense whether the messaging is working, whether it's relevant, whether it's resonating. And they can also start to notice and to anticipate what the customer is going to want to see or hear next. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche in the sense that we, all of us in business, we talk about putting ourselves in the customer's shoes. But it's amazing how few sellers and vendors are prepared to actually jump over the shop counter and put themselves in the customer's shoes. And that often means seeking to understand what it's like to be in that position. And of course, because the areas in which businesses operate and people operate are universal in the sense that all of us have felt at some time ignored or 
overlooked or humiliated or anxious or afraid. So we've all felt what it is to stand on the other side of the shop counter and to be overlooked or to be frightened. We owe it to ourselves, not just to ask our customers, but also to relate ourselves, our own experiences from our lives or to relate our experiences from family, from friends. So an example of that, we're doing some work at the moment with a group of nursing homes. And uh, one of the questions we ask our colleagues, our clients in the nursing homes is to, to think of a time themselves in their lives when they had to move from one home to another, whether that be moving from their family home to their college accommodation or from their family home to their marriage home or moving home because somebody lost their job and had to move to a smaller home. We invite them to tell stories about moving home and try to understand what's the experience you had of moving home. And that mix of, in some cases, trepidation, excitement, worry, anxiety, delight, all of those things go into into moving home. And then to understand what it must be like to reach a certain age and a certain uh, dependency and know that you're going to move into a nursing home. So it's inviting people to connect their own experiences with their experiences of their customers. And it's through that constant relating of your own experience to somebody else's experience that it enables us to begin to understand, first of all, what does the person on the other side of the shop counter need to hear? What is it they need to hear at that moment? And sometimes what people need to hear is a classic, there, there, it's going to be all right, or you're very welcome, or I'm delighted to see you. And the way in which that message is delivered might change, but that core message is at the heart of great communication. It sounds like empathy is a critical capability that's required in order to be able to connect and relate. And what I'm really curious about, because I've spent quite a bit of my career living out of a suitcase hotels, and one thing that's always amazed me is you go to a hotel, they then give you that customer satisfaction survey afterwards. You never find out how they've used that information. The questions that they ask all seem to be self-serving rather than to serve you. So, for example, I remember I was in a corner room next to the lift by the ice machine overlooking the pool and I was kept awake at night the night before I had a conference talk to give and I was kept awake by a stag do that seemed to be going on till the early hours. And at no point was anyone asking me whether or not soundproofing was important to me. There wasn't even a section where I could freeform and say that soundproofing was important to me. So each time I'm asked to fill out one of those forms, I view it with cynicism and I don't really value it. And I think part of what I'm hearing here is that the brand is built on that two-way communication It's being the customer feeling understood, the vendor, whether they're retail or otherwise, being able to see the world through the eyes of the customer and recognizing the kind of experience that they want from that service. Is that a pretty fair summary? I think that's a great summary because what you're describing is something of the dishonesty, and and I'm not saying it's a deliberate dishonesty, but I think it's something of that dishonesty in the business owner where they haven't asked themselves the question first. 
what value is there in a room that's close to the elevator and that is next to a stag party, etc. So there's often a dishonesty in terms of what it is I'm actually selling. I'm often astonished. I'm sure you've had the same experience over the years is where you book a um, hotel for a holiday. I'm not necessarily talking about a business hotel so much as a holiday hotel overseas. And you arrive and discover that there's works in progress and that by necessity, the works in progress are going on during some of the times that you want to have a quiet room and a quiet time, whether you're sleeping or relaxing. And they haven't told you. So there's a dishonesty Nobody has asked the question, what's it like to arrive on a holiday to find yourself next door to instruction works, for example? And the honest thing to do would be to say, during this period when we have construction works, we're discounting our rooms. So if you're happy to buy a discounted room, on the understanding is that you're not going to have an entirely peaceful time. There are certain times of the day when you won't be using that room. And that would be a much more honest approach and much more of an approach based on a relationship. And I think a lot of the time what we do is that we rely on the very costly remedy of compensating people retrospectively for their disappointment or for that disingenuity, I think, that can be at work. And I think that goes on in, in all sorts of environments where you get invited onto a website, for example, to purchase something. You go through the rigmarole of getting to a point and then they tell you it's not in stock but it's being advertised on the front page of the website or it's being advertised on radio so there's something dishonest about getting people to waste their time and going on board so i know this it's probably you know i'm coming across as as terribly militant (laughs) in an area of relationship but i think there is a, a certain rigorous integrity that is at the heart of great commercial relationships and i think There are many instances, I think particularly with small businesses, and I'm conscious that that we are speaking here to many small business owners. I think small business owners have a great opportunity to steal a march on bigger competitors, competitors with deeper pockets, by really committing themselves to the relationship and committing themselves to both ends of the relationship. There's an old saying, you know, when you pick up one end of a stick, you have to pick up the other. When you engage in a relationship, like any relationship in, in, in life, You have to understand there are two sides to it. And that if both sides aren't getting what they need from the relationship, then it's not going to last for very long. Taking this slightly further, looking at the brand promise that organizations have with their staff, that's a hugely important area that I think the better companies definitely get. But I see this very often where there's high turnover in staff, their net promoter scores are poor. And that's reflected in the experience that the customers have. Same thing in the supply chain or within the partner networks, where they aren't really perceived as being valuable. They're seen as a utility and a commodity. And if you're going to really build strong brand and loyalty and long-term relationship, then I think you can't just look at the customer. I think you have to look at the promise that you make to your staff, the promise that you make to your partners and to your suppliers. And that whole piece around being disarmingly, scrupulously honest, I think is absolutely key because Mark Twain said it better than I could. Always tell the truth. That way you don't have to remember anything. 
And I think it's really important that people are scrupulously honest. Always confess. If there is a problem, raise it. If there's an objection, raise it. If there's some form of deficiency or reason why a buyer may not want to buy your products or services, raise it with them. Your thoughts? I absolutely agree again. There's another kind of saying comes to my mind. I don't know whether this is universal, but farmers in Ireland will often say, you have to leave something on the table for the other fellow. If you're striking a deal, you have to leave something on the table for the other fellow. And that's a recognition in a sense that there has to be value in every part of the relationship. Now, coming specifically to the, the issue of recruitment and team, etc., is that, again, I believe that far too many companies uh, recruit on the basis of, uh, I suppose, if not quite false promises, at least misleading promises about what's in it for the recruit, what's in it for the business, and ultimately what's in it for the customer. And I think it's where kind of transparency is a tremendous asset in any organization, because I think when we're transparent and we are putting all of our cards on the table, I think it's very refreshing, first of all, and it's also very reassuring. And new recruits, team members, etc., are far more likely to commit themselves when they're very clear, not just what's in it for me, but what's in it for my employer, and also what's in it for our customer. And there's an exercise we do with our clients where we identify in dollar terms, in sterling terms, in euro terms, we ask ourselves the question, where is the value in this relationship? Where does that value lie? And what's being exchanged? Are we clear that there's a fair exchange of value happening here? It doesn't mean necessarily it has to be equivalent because it's in the exchange of value that premium lies. That's where people are prepared and happy to pay. And I think there's this sort of misconception that somehow or other, if you're paying more for something than you could get it for elsewhere, that somewhere else, somewhere or other, you're losing out. But I mean, you only have to stand by the forecourt of any of the big name car brands and watch the happy customers leaving, driving their new car. And they're delighted to have spent more than they needed to. They could have got a car that would get them from one place to another equally well at a competitor's garage for much cheaper. Of course they could, but they're delighted to spend more. Why? Because those big brands have persuaded them that there's value and they've demonstrated that value and everything they do pre-sale, during the sale, post-sale is about reminding people of the value they're, they're receiving. A great example of this is Mercedes. They've moved or they're moving over to a subscription model. So you subscribe to your car and they're actually charging twice as much as if you were buying it or leasing it. But now if you want to change the car, you can. If you want to upgrade, you can. If you want to downgrade, you can. And as a result of that, there is a shift in people's expectation in terms of what the service is. Because they're not just buying a car, they're buying an entire experience, a lifestyle. And I think people's self-perception is tied into the kind of products that they use. I was watching the founder of HubSpot last Monday, and he was talking about the joy that he has in his wardrobe, in his shaving equipment, because you know, he's with the Dollar Shaving Club the coffee that he drinks. And it was really fascinating because you've mentioned in the past how LucasAid evolved their message by really understanding how their audience was changing. And 
The counterpoint to that would be the Horlicks brand that has seen decline in sales over many years. And what I'm really curious about is how the leadership can stay on top of that messaging. Because I think you kind of pointed to it earlier on, where people stay wedded to what made them successful in the past. And they forget that it's not going to be the thing that makes them successful in the future necessarily. Yeah, and I think it's also, Mark, is a misconception that uh, a relationship with the market is going to necessarily last forever. Perhaps, I've never drunk Horlicks, I only know by reputation, but perhaps there isn't a need or a want for it anymore. And perhaps the decent thing to do would be to acknowledge that and to shrink to serve the remaining market for it. So again, I think that when you look at, at business through the framework of relationship, and you ask yourself, you know, what gap are we bridging? You've got to be asking the question, is it a, a gap worth bridging? And is it a, a gap that needs bridging? And if it isn't, well, then go and do something else. I think we sometimes delude ourselves that people need us more than they do. I think if you look at historically where business emerged from, was very often people perceiving a, a real need, a want for something in the market, and then reaching out to address it. And of course, in some cases, creating or, or anticipating a need that people didn't even know they, <laughs> they had. I think that characterizes the great origin stories of a lot of businesses. But sometimes it's about saying our time here is done. <laughs> it's really interesting because I'm going through a similar kind of transition because historically my market has been fusty wasps in their 50 who have built up a business. But increasingly, as I move more mainstream into tech, my audience is largely millennials. And you know, there's a 20-year gap, maybe even a bit more depressingly, between me and them. And it's forcing me to look very differently in terms of what they value. At the end of the day, people are motivated, I think, by their selfish self-interest, but they're also motivated by their core values. And that's been a really interesting exercise for us in our business because what I've noticed is that making a contribution seems to be more important to millennials. Having more flexibility and freedom is more important. I've noticed that my messaging has had to change to look at those different aspects rather than focusing on profit and just purely about growth. Often it's about creating a greater contribution for the people who work with them, for their customers, and adding value, making sure that they're bringing something that's important and meaningful to the marketplace. So this is a really interesting transition period for us, but I suspect a lot of people are going through that at the moment. So I'd really like to sum up. I mean, if you were to advise owners of the majority of my client base is small to mid-sized companies that are looking to scale up. What advice would you give them in order to really get to grips with that relationship with their customer and how it's evolving? I think the starting point has to be always the customer's position. People talk about market positioning and they're obsessed with the idea of kind of jockeying for position, for leadership position or for ranking type of position. That really doesn't matter. What customers are looking for is where do you stand relative to them? 
because they're looking to achieve something. They're looking to make something happen. They're look, make, looking to make some form of difference in their own lives. It may be a small difference. It might be a big difference. But they want something to change. And they're looking for somebody else to play a role in, in helping to make that change, to make work easier for them, to make them less thirsty, to make them feel more confident. They're looking to change. So positioning is always down to what I describe as customer main time. In the same way as Greenwich main time kind of defines where you are in the world relative to zero on the map. Customers are interested in knowing where do you stand relative to me? And that's where you build your bridge. So the greatest piece of advice I can give is to say to people, look to where your customers are, where they're positioned, look to what matters to them and look to what the gap is that they're looking to bridge. That's where you must build your bridge. You have to build your bridge relative to where they stand. In Dublin, which used to be defined by the Haypenny Bridge, which was a small footbridge across the Lifty. The kind of iconic image of Dublin is now increasingly the Calatrava Bridge, the Samuel Beckett Bridge that's down near our uh, convention centre, down near the kind of the heart of our commercial district. But the Calatrava Bridge, the Samuel Beckett Bridge, is a beautiful bridge, but it's a useless bridge because most of the time the traffic on the bridge is stopped. The purpose of a bridge is to enable people to pass quickly and easily from one side to the other. So when we build our brand, when we build a bridge for our customers, we have to ask ourselves, where do we need to build a bridge? Where do we need to stand in order to build a bridge relative to where our customers are? And that's really what positioning is, is that the world belongs to those businesses that are building bridges directly to their customers and enabling their customers to pass back and forward as quickly as as possible and as easily as possible in order to achieve what it is they want to, to do. Excellent. Gerald, thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I'm going to finish with a couple of questions. One is, what do you recommend people read or listen to or watch in terms of videos and podcasts and books that maybe will help them to get a better understanding of branding and how it affects them? My view on books is that there are probably three or four books in total <laughs> that explain everything about the world and how it works. I don't know what those three or four books are, but I'd say, say that your listeners should certainly read books which are about how people relate to one another. So books about sociology, books about relationships, books about empathy, books about communication. It's in those books from the top of my head. I've really enjoyed reading Winston Churchill's writings and his speeches because He's a tremendous communicator and has a, a tremendous understanding of how the world works, not just the world of war, but the, the world of peace and the world of people and politics and, and interaction. So I'd recommend people to listen to the TED Talks that are about education, that are about communication, that are about people, because it's those, the world really belongs to the marketers. And by that, I mean not just the professional marketers, but the people who are, you know, are tasked with, with influencing, with persuading, with teaching, with showing, with getting people to do things differently, with inspiring people. So those are the books that I've read over the years that people I've listened to. The films I've watched, great films that tell you, just finished watching uh, Fried Green Tomatoes, you know? <laughs> and, you know, that's an old film. But wow, what a wonderful exploration it is of of people and people growing older, people making peace with their younger selves. All sorts of wonderful lessons about life 
And business is really just a part of life. Agreed. I think to build on that then, a couple of great books around communication and empathy. Just Listen by Mark Goulston is fantastic. Another one that is really useful in terms of getting you out of your own way is Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday and two fantastic talks, Sir Ken Robinson, on how education is being done wrong and uh, the kind of damage that it does. And also Kiran Birasethi, her motto is one idea, one week, change a billion lives. And I would also recommend listening to Brene Brown on shame. Just genuinely fantastic talks. So final question, I know we've talked about this in the past, but if you were advising your 23-year-old idiot self, what bit of advice would you give him so that he didn't end up swallowing a grenade? I guess, and this is very personal for me, I guess my 23-year-old self believed that people who were older than me, people who were richer than me, people who were more experienced than me kind of knew everything, and I didn't. I think... (laughs) And I think to my 23-year-old self, I would say, you know, kind of trust the common sense that you're developing, that you're evolving. You know, if something doesn't add up based on your own experience, question it. It doesn't mean that you're right necessarily, but don't take at face value that people who are bigger than you or richer than you or more experienced than you know more than you and, and always know the right thing to do. I think the right thing to do is right whether 23, whether you're 50, you know, whether you're poor, whether you're rich. The, the right thing to do and to, yeah, to trust that sense of relationship, I guess, and that uh, small people are, are as well equipped to build great relationships as, uh, as big people. That's really interesting. I mean, one of the rules that I teach is that even on your worst day, the prospect is never more or less than your equal. And I think one of the key lessons that I've taken from this conversation is that status doesn't necessarily convey wisdom. And you should trust your gut and you should question everything. I think just accepting what you're told is invariably dangerous and particularly where you're living in a bubble, you're listening to your own rhetoric. Be really careful about who you're listening to and invite opinion that conflicts directly with your own because if you don't, then it's very easy to be seduced into thinking you're right. And I think what that then creates is this adversarial them versus us kind of context, which is incredibly damaging. And you only have to look at the current political situation, both over here and over across the pond. And you see this in businesses that become complacent because they're not questioning. There's one very large software company that I'm aware of that has just not changed. And as a result, in fact, there are a couple of them that I can think of. And they've created a groundswell of resentment amongst their customer base. And if they weren't the dominant player, then people would move. But there are plenty of pretenders coming in, or not pretenders, upstart businesses that are coming in. And as they move on to the cloud and software as a service, their core market will be eroded because they're no longer as relevant as they used to be. So I think there's some really valuable lessons to be had there. Gerard, how can people get hold of you? I can be found very easily through our website, islandbridge.com, islandbridge.com. And of course, I can be reached by email 
Gerard at islandbridge.com. And that's Island, I-S-L-A-N-D. That's right. And Gerard, G-E-R-A-R-D. And Tanam, T-A-N-N-A-M. Excellent. Gerard, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Thank you for listening. Please like, share, and comment on this podcast. And if you've got any questions of either me or Gerard, please get in touch. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you.